Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Evenings at 7 on Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. That would be me. I'm awfully uh, glad that we have this day together. Happy Wednesday. And I've got uh, Dr. Chris Bruno in my studio, so I'm very excited about our conversation we're going to have about uh, the Bible, which is my personal favorite subject, and I believe it's his. So we're going to have a a great discussion on his book called The Whole Story of the Bible in 16 Verses. So we're going to chat about that, and if you have uh, any questions or comments or anything you like clarified, it's a standing offer that you uh, can send me a text message and ask the question, the clarifying question. We don't want anything to slip through the cracks as we go about our, our time here on the radio. So let us know, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. I'm looking at everyone in the studio. We all have sweaters on today. Which is a lovely fall day here in the Twin Cities, but um, I've, I've got out my cashmere sweater, and I found out that cashmere is cultivated from the belly of cashmere goats. So they sacrifice quite a bit, those little tiny hairs on the bottom underside of a goat. And then they work hard to get those fibers and make them into a sweater. So I just want them, those little goats to know how much I appreciate them. So, And I always buy my cashmere in like March or April when they go, ah, couldn't sell these at Christmas, so we're practically giving them away right now. So I've got my um, $150 cashmere sweater on that I paid $23 for. So I feel like a smart shopper. All right. Enough stories that go nowhere. Let's uh, take a 60-second break and bring on Chris. Strengthen your faith and grow closer to God through the Faith Radio Prayer Devotional email. It's a weekly message of prayer and encouragement that's also easy to share with others. Sign up for the prayer devotional email online at myfaithradio.com. Click on the subscriptions tab, fill out your information, and you'll start receiving the email. Be blessed and encouraged with the prayer devotional email. You have your people, the people who help you connect faith to life. When they show a simple trust, those people are your kids. When it's unconditional forgiveness, maybe it's your spouse. And when it's someone who serves and teaches and encourages, maybe it's your pastor. We all have people. At Faith Radio, we are a collection of those people growing together every day in the ways of grace and hope and truth. Connecting faith to life. Faith Radio. In studio, I have Dr. Chris Bruno. He's assistant professor of New Testament and Greek at Bethlehem College in SEM here in Minneapolis. Previously served as pastor at Harbor Church in Honolulu, Hawaii. And he and his wife, Chris, have four strapping young sons, ages 3 to 15. Awfully nice to have you back in studio. Chris, how are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for uh, having me back. Yeah, and that's not cashmere, is it? 
It is not cashmere. Yeah. But, but it looks very comfortable. Yeah, it's comfortable. I think this was a, a Goodwill special. <laughs> 50 <laughs> I like, cents. I like you even more. <laughs> All right. I'm looking forward to chatting today about your, your, your book called The Whole Story of the Bible in 16 Verses. All right. This is intriguing. Why did you write this book? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I certainly did not do it to replace the Bible. I've had people say things like that. So if I read your book, then I don't have to read the Bible, right? No, 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 no. Wrong. (laughs) Wrong answer. Complete opposite. The goal is to get you to the Bible. But we'll talk about that in a minute. So what I found over the years, uh, both in my growing up years and then just in my years uh, in ministry, is that there are a lot of people, and, and I put myself in this category at one point, a lot of people who didn't understand the way the whole Bible fits together that the Bible tells a single story about a single story that centers in Jesus. Now, as I was having kids and as my, well, my kids are younger, some of them are, but when my oldest was uh, younger, we started finding all these great uh, kids books that put the whole Bible together. Things like uh, the Jesus storybook Bible. I don't know if you got, if you're, you're familiar no, with I'm it. No, I'm interested in it though. Yeah, Sally Lloyd-Jones, The Jesus oh, Storybook yeah. Bible. Okay, I've really, heard about that. Yeah, really good book. Or The Big Picture Story Bible okay. by David Helm, I think. There's these great kids' books that tell the whole story of the Bible. And then when I was in seminary and then when I was in pastoral ministry, I was reading a lot of more high-level books, academic-type books, and, and books that did something similar but at a totally different level. But what I never saw was something kind of in between. Mm-hmm. Something between the kids' book and, you know, the seminary textbooks. Mm -hmm. So when I was a pastor in Hawaii, uh, we were, one of my roles was to lead this little pastoral training institute. And so I taught different classes, led the guys through through, uh, Bible courses. And I was teaching one class on uh, covenants and how the whole Bible fits together through the, the covenants. And one afternoon, I sat down and I thought, okay, we, we've got a two-hour class tonight. I want to go through the whole Bible in two hours. What's mm-hmm. the best way to do it? So I, I, I sketched out uh, 17 verses is what it was the first time through. So, and then that night, we sat down, and over the course of two hours, we just walked through the whole Bible, beginning in Genesis 1, ending in Revelation 21 and 22. And in the, at the end of the, the two hours, all of us, myself included, we're just struck by the glory of God, the unity of Scripture, the way it all fits together. And I had a couple of the guys tell me, we, we got to figure out a way to write that up or get nice. that into some other people's hands. Nice. So I sat down and uh, tried to uh, put together a, a book and a few years ago published this book, The Whole Story of the Bible in 16 Verses. And the goal of the book is really to meet that are to fill that middle gap between the seminary textbooks and the kids' story Bibles that do a great job telling the story of the Bible. And actually, I encourage people to read those. Like, you know, as a 35-year-old, pick it up mm-hmm. and read it if you're new to the Bible or, or if you've been reading the Bible your whole life. But the, the reality is most people would be embarrassed sitting in a coffee shop reading the Jesus Storybook Bible, the kids' <laughs> book, right? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to give them something that they could read without being embarrassed in a coffee shop that tells the whole story of the Bible in a concise way that just helps remind us of the way the whole thing fits together so that when we go back to our Bible reading, which uh, we need to do, again, my book is not replacing the Bible, but we go back to the Scriptures ourselves and we're reading through Second Kings or something like that. We have 
just a, a good kind of framework to go back to and think, okay, where does this fit in the overall story? What's come before? What's come after? And so I hope that my, my little book is a resource to help people do that. Yeah. Can I give you some free radio advice? Yeah. Yeah. You're not making any friends when you casually throw out the, when I was a pastor in Hawaii. <laughs> you see, you're not, you're not making any friends at all. That's okay. Okay. <laughs> I, all right. I have plenty of friends. I don't need any more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Great. I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm no, kidding. no, I know. Well, so you had uh, a start of 17 verses. You're down to 16. Which verse got cut before we get into the book? Um, Hebrews. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so in uh, Hebrews, uh, in a, for some reason, the verse is falling out of my brain. That's but, okay. Uh, well, I didn't make it in the book for now. So we're, we are going to talk about the whole story of the Bible in 16 verses. This is going to be great. Chris is going to lay this out for us, and we're going to we're going to get a nice, big, comprehensive story. And I, I like the idea that you've figured out something to have in between kids' books. And I think everyone should read kids' books because they're so good. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, especially books that you liked as a kid. You should go back and read them as an adult. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because right, they, they, they help us remember what stories are like and why we love stories and exactly which helps us be better readers of the bible to be honest yeah and be- and better communicate communicators i can't even, can't even spit the word out <laughs> boy i tell you this maybe is, you need to read some kids books yeah my cashmere's choking me today <laughs> gotta get the sweater off okay um yeah so let's take our break now and then when we come back we'll uh, we'll start in with the whole story of the bible in 16 verses i'll get a drink of water and i think i can reset myself we'll be back in just a minute We are back. Dr. Chris Bruno. Chris got his PhD at Wheaton College, serves as assistant professor of New Testament and Greek at Bethlehem College and Seminary right here in Minneapolis. Written a book called The Whole Story of the Bible in 16 Verses. I'm intrigued. We're going to try to go through the material today, so get your Bibles out. Chris, where should we start? I would assume Genesis. Genesis, yeah. yeah. Genesis 1 is where we begin, uh, which makes sense, right? Oh, total but, sense. But, uh, the creation account in Genesis 1 is, is so foundational for understanding the, the rest of Scripture. And, uh, I mean, we could, we could really camp out our whole hour in Genesis 1, but we're not going to, I don't think. Uh, we'll see how it goes. But uh, in Genesis 1, really where I want to start is the last verse of Genesis 1. Uh, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, Genesis one thirty one. So as we think about the whole story of the Bible, where I always want us to start, where I always start, is God. I mean, that's where the chapter begins, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the chapter ends with God saw everything that he had made. So when we talk about the story of the Bible, the main character of the Bible is God. So I I, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble who's listening, but you are not the main character in the Bible. Mm. Never have been, never will be. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. The main character of the Bible is God, the, the one who created all things. Uh, he made every he made everything. In in I don't in the book I don't get into the age of the earth and those kind of questions, and that's not particularly where I want to go this afternoon. But the main thing that we see in Genesis one is that there's nothing that was made that God did not make. Therefore, there's nothing that God does not have authority over. So as we, as we start thinking about the story of the Bible, we start, God made all things. He has authority over all things. 
And then thirdly, everything that he made was very good. As Christians, we can't be uh, anti-materialists. You know, the ancient heresy of Gnosticism said the material body, the material creation is bad. And Genesis 1 is directly opposed to that. God's creation is good. Now, we look outside in about three months, if we looked out the window of the studio here, we'd probably see snow piled up on the road out there, all yucky and black, and you know how snow gets in the winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we might... Let's keep this upbeat. <laughs> okay. We might... <laughs> The, the point I'm making is okay. that uh, when we see the create, when we look around the creation now, we might not want to call it good, whether it's, you know, dirty black snow or more serious things like the crime we see, the, the, the pain in the world every day on the news, we see things that make us cringe. But we have to remember that God created the world very good and he's committed to his good creation. So that really sets up the rest of the story. And then building on that, if we go back a couple of verses, so start in Genesis 131, but if we go back to God's creation of human beings, that kind of adds to the story. In, in Genesis 127, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. How do you process that, Chris, through your brain? God created us in his image. Yeah. That's phenomenal. That's, it's breathtaking to think of. I don't know how to put my arms around it because I look at myself in the mirror and I go, really? <laughs> exactly. It, it's hard to process. It, it's hard to understand. Christians throughout the centuries have mm-hmm. debated uh, what exactly does it mean to be made in God's image. Some have said it's you know it's our ability to reason. Some have said it's our ability to relate to each other. Some have said it's the, the things that we do. In, I say it's all of those things. Mm-hmm. Somehow God has made us to reflect him. It's interesting. You know, God creates Adam and Eve as his image, and he puts them in the garden. Later on in the ancient Near East, we see uh, little idols being put in these pagan temples to represent the God who they're worshiping. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a dim reflection of what's going on in the original creation that God put us in the garden to reflect him to the world around us and really to act as his representatives on earth. So that's what God is doing with Adam and Eve. So he creates them in his image. He blesses them and he gives them a a job. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Verse 28, have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, every living thing that moves on the earth. So we have this conception that, uh, you know, having dominion over the earth well, it's because people have abused that, right? People abuse the earth. People abuse the creation. People abuse animals. People abuse each other. Again, we tend to just jump to the world as we experience it now before stepping back and thinking, okay, God created the world good, and he created human beings as his representatives to rule over the world in a good and perfect way. Really, he created Adam and Eve to rule on his behalf. So I'll go to Narnia here. If, you, if you're familiar with Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, um, who's, who's the king? Well, the high king, the biggest, the, 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 the guy who's really in charge is Aslan, right? But then Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy are kings and queens in Narnia who rule on Aspen, Aslan's behalf. So I, I think C.S. Lewis is just really 
pointing us to Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. Adam and Eve are kings and queen, or a king and queen who rule on God's behalf. They rule over his good creation. They're intended to represent him, to fill the earth. So be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, means that they were to have children and to fill the earth with God's glory. So they were to, to f- expand the borders of the garden, so to speak, and, and so that all the earth represents uh, and reflects the glory of its creator. So in Genesis 1, we really have really the rest of history set up for us. God created all things. He made all things good. He's committed to his good creation. Adam and Eve are to represent him and rule on his behalf to expand the borders of the garden to reflect him so that all the earth is filled with his glory. So that, that's where we start. Uh, that sets up the rest of the story. Now, as I've alluded to several times along the way, when we look out the window, that's not what we see, right? We see something has gone wrong because Adam and Eve and the rest of us uh, did not relate, do not relate to God the way we see described in Genesis 1 and 2. So that, that takes us to our, our third verse. And I don't know uh, if I, I'm trying to pace myself here, but uh, <laughs> feel free to jump in with, with questions. No, no, you're good. Okay, you're good. okay, good. So our, we get to Genesis 3, and we see things are broken. We see why things are broken in Genesis 3, 6, and 7. The woman, that is Eve, saw that the tree... This is the tree that God said they could not eat from. The tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So what's going on here? Well, Adam and Eve were given this commission by God to rule on his behalf to represent him in the good creation, but they had one prohibition. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. So they they can't eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is what we typically call it. We tend to think of that primarily in terms of, you know, God gave them this restriction without thinking about everything else that God had given to Mm -hmm. them, right? They had free reign of the rest of the garden. They could eat of every tree. They could enjoy all of it to its fullness. But there was one tree that they were not to eat of. And that, I mean, not to start preaching, but that's so often our focus, right? Mm-hmm. We, we forget about all of the good gifts that God has given us, all of the good things he has given us to enjoy and to glorify him as we enjoy it. We focus on what we should not do. And we start to think, God's out to get us. He's trying. He, he, he's not looking out for our good. He's not letting us be as happy as we could be. Yeah, exactly. I don't even know how we come up with that crazy idea. It, it, it is. That's what it is. It's crazy, and it's sin, and, and that's, what the, that's what the serpent is planting into uh, their mind here, right? So that, that's, the serpent comes to them, and he makes them question God's goodness. Did God really say this? Uh are, are God's motives good? God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will become like him, knowing good and evil. So, so the fundamental temptation for Adam and Eve is not trusting God, right? It's not trusting that what God instructs them to do is best for them. 
And again, we could go off on all kinds of applications there. Doesn't it seem like a simple obedience given the, the monstrosity of the uh, abundance in the garden that God give them full reign to enjoy and then this one little tree sitting in the middle yeah. seems like a simple simple it obedience simple. it does it does but and and in hindsight think of the uh, I, I know i can think of of times in my life where you know mistakes i've made sins i've committed looking back oh it seems so simple it's so easy just keep your mouth shut or don't do this <laughs> or don't do that mm-hmm uh, but sin and temptation just distorts the way we look at the world. So in the moment, it doesn't feel like that. It feels mon- like this monstrosity. But uh, it's because we're, our perspective is warped. We forget who God is. We forget his love for us, his goodness toward us. And so we follow in the train of Adam and Eve. So- and there's no mention, Chris, of Adam and Eve uh, passing by this tree in the garden and going, whoa, 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 does this look like a great tree to, to consume? <laughs> the fruit on this thing looks awesome. Like they were never really tempted prior to Satan coming in and saying, hey, you should take a bite of this. You'll be more like him. Yeah, we don't see, I mean, we we don't see much of what's going on right. here. But clearly the serpent comes in and he's making them doubt God's word. So that raises the question, how how did the serpent even get in there to begin with? Part of their job was to protect the garden, to cultivate it, to rule over the animals. And here we have the serpent reversing the order of creation. The serpent is the one calling the shots rather than Adam and Eve Mm -hmm. as God's image bearers. And and we also have this picture, uh, I think it's helpful to to notice in verse 6, we have this picture of Eve kind of on her own going off and, and grabbing the fruit, which we don't know if it's an apple. Apples in their current state probably didn't exist but you, you know what I mean. mm-hmm. whatever fruit it is they grab it and she eats it and adam's off doing his job he's pulling the weeds or something or the weeds didn't exist yet uh, yeah. you, you, know, <laughs> you know he's doing something yeah and then he comes and he's like oh eve what did you do and she talks him into sending along with him but what does the text say it says she gave some to her husband who was with her yeah so apparently i think he was with her the whole time he's standing by Swatching this go down, so he fails to to step up to expel the serpent from the garden. Mm-hmm. He fails to protect his wife. He fails to lead uh, the way that that God commissioned him to lead. And uh, there's disaster here. So the result of this is the eyes of both are open. So their innocence is lost, so to speak. They knew they were naked. They they have shame. They have guilt. They sow these leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the the fellowship that they had with each other and with God was broken. And so that's what that's why we look out the window and we see so much brokenness in the world. And we'll talk in a minute about the curse, but I think we can see here fundamentally what broke the world, if we can talk about it that way. What mm-hmm. broke the world was our sin. And and so when we think about what's broken in the world, I always remind people What's broken in the world is me. Yeah. Yeah. And that causes... Uh, <laughs> was it, it was the Lord that made the garments for Adam and Eve, wasn't it? Didn't he make the garments for... He did yeah, later. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We're we'll taking a little break. Dr. Chris Bruno's in studio, and uh, we're chatting about his book, uh, which is called The Whole Story of the Bible in 16 Verses. I, I don't know if we're going to get through all 16, but we're going to try hard. <laughs> Be back in a minute. Sunday afternoons at 12. 
I'm glad to be welcoming back into the studio Dr. Chris Bruno. You may have remembered him when he was on talking about his book, Paul versus James, what we've been missing in the grace versus works debate. So I just want to help you connect the dots. If you're trying to figure out what you remember Chris from, it was the first time he came on, he talked about his book, Paul versus James. Now we're chatting about the whole story of the Bible in 16 verses. Now, I didn't think we we're going to get through all 16, and we're not on track to do so, but we're off to a really good start, and I think we're still in Genesis chapter 3, talking about redemption. Yeah, we're uh, half an hour into it, and we're only uh, <laughs> a chapter, two chapters into the Bible, so uh, that's okay. One, one of the things we were just chatting about is how fundamental it is for us to understand how the whole Bible fits together. Um, we need to understand Genesis, and especially these early chapters of Genesis, because it builds a foundation for everything else that comes after. After We were talking about how God created everything, human, how human beings sin, and sin entered the world, and as a result of uh, their sin, where we left off, is the curse. So in Genesis 3, we have God turning to the serpent, and to Adam, and to Eve, and declaring to them the results of their sin, their rebellion against him. So just to be clear, when we talk about sin, it's not just, you know, a little mistake that I make or something that's out of my control. Sin is rebellion against the God who made us. Sin is treason against the God who made us. And so for God to be just, it demands uh, justice, punishment, punishment, curse, And so that's what we see in Genesis 3. God is cursing the world. He's cursing human beings. But even in the midst of that curse, we're not left without hope. Mm -hmm. So Genesis 3.15, God is talking to the serpent. And Adam and Eve are listening in. And we all are listening in. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity or hostility between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring... And her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So let's break that down just a little bit. God promised the serpent that there would be these two lines, these two lines of offspring. So the line of the serpent and the line of the woman. This is really fundamental throughout the rest of the Bible. We'll we'll come back to this in a minute. But you you have these two lines And he says to the serpent, he, that is the offspring of the woman, the descendant of the woman, will bruise your head. And you, serpent, will bruise his heel. So obviously a bruise to the head is worse than a bruise to the heel. So what what God is saying is you'll hurt him, but he'll kill you. Mm Mm-hmm. So theologians call this the first gospel, the proto-evangelium, the first time the gospel is pronounced. And as we think about the rest of the story, if you're familiar with it, you, you, you know where this is going. And I'll just go ahead and, and, and put my cards on the table. Who is the offspring of the woman? Well, ultimately, we know where this is heading as Christians. This is pointing us to Jesus. But even as we read the story of the Old Testament, there's this tension, there's this question, who is the offspring of the woman? So as you read through Genesis, you can be asking yourself this question, who is this offspring? Who is the one who's going to set right everything that sin and the curse have made wrong in the world? 
So when we go to Genesis 4, and Adam and Eve have their first son, uh, Cain, uh, Eve says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And, and it's kind of ambiguous there in the Hebrew, but there's a hint maybe that she's saying, I've gotten a man from the Lord, namely this one who is promised to right the wrong that is in the world. But we know what happens with Cain. He wasn't the promised one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he killed his brother. And, and then from Cain to his descendants, on and on we go. So we can we can slightly pick up the pace here as we think about Genesis 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Uh, things go from bad to worse and worse and worse and worse. So when we get to Genesis 6, uh, we have human beings sinning, sinning, sinning. And in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This isn't one of our 16 verses. Just, just to be clear, so I'm cheating. But uh, uh, God sees the wickedness of human beings, and he judges the earth in the flood. And again, we're, we're, we're just moving past these huge sections of Scripture. He judges the earth in the flood, and afterwards, Noah and his family emerge from the ark. So there's a question that, that shows up as you're reading the story. Is Noah the one who will give us rest? Noah's name means rest or comfort. So there's a hint that maybe he's the one who will give us rest because the curse, what was the curse? It was you're going to toil by the sweat of your brow, you'll get your food. So I think that's a hint that maybe Noah's the one through whom this rest from the curse will come. But what happens when Noah gets off the ark? Well, again, we find Noah in a garden, a vineyard, um, and instead of trusting the Lord and his descendants trusting the Lord, he gets drunk and there's this whole thing with his sons and he's naked. He's drunk and naked is the got bottom messy line. Quickly, it got it? messy quickly again. So we're still waiting for that promised one. And that brings us all the way to Genesis 12. So again, we're, we're moving quickly through the story, mm-hmm. but one of Noah's descendants named Abram, we know him as Abraham, is living in Ur of the Chaldees, modern-day Iraq, and God appears to him. God appears to him and says, Genesis 12, 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So here we're, we're getting to our fourth verse, or fifth verse, excuse me, Genesis 12, 2 and 3. And God promises that he will make of Abram a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And what we see as we unpack the Abraham story is God promises him a son, an offspring. So as we track this this theme, the offspring of the woman, a descendant of Eve, Abraham is promised a son, a descendant, through whom the promises will come. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we, we can trace this theme out throughout the story. We see this promise. Is this son going to be the one? There's this dramatic tension every time a baby boy is born. There's a question. Is he going to be the one? It wasn't Noah. It, or it wasn't Cain. It wasn't Noah. Here we have the promise reiterated with Abraham. So Abraham has this question hanging over his head. Uh, In verse 7, to your offspring, again, the offspring shows up, I will give this land. 
So is it going to be Isaac? So that's the narrative tension throughout most of the Abraham story. If you know the story, you're familiar with it. There's a question, when is the son going to be born? For years and years, he's waiting, waiting for Isaac to be born. And finally, when Abraham's 100 years old, Isaac is born. But Isaac isn't the one who brings rest. Isaac has his own own trouble. And then Jacob, Isaac's son, is he the one? He's not the one who's going to bring rest. And then Jacob has these 12 sons, and there's a whole mess of a story there, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, sure is. And they, they try to kill one of their brothers, or they sell him off into slavery in Egypt. So the, the last bit of Genesis is devoted to the Joseph story. And through Joseph, we, we have this question, is he going to be the one, or or one of these sons of Jacob going to be the one? And, and we see uh, Jake, or excuse me, Joseph going to Egypt and blessing the nations, right? Remember in Genesis 12, 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Joseph goes to Egypt and he begins to bless the nations. He blesses Egypt as he has wisdom to rule over them and help them through this famine. And he's beginning to bless the nations. But we see that, that Joseph is not the one because there's another descendant promised. So in the, in the second to last chapter of Genesis, Genesis 49, 10, we have Jacob lying on his deathbed. And as he's preparing to die, he's blessing each of his sons, uh, each of his 12 sons, and he's giving them blessing. And some of the blessings aren't <laughs> too great, uh, but we, we won't unpack all those. But then we get to Judah. Now, it's interesting. Judah is uh, not exactly the sterling figure that Joseph is in the Genesis narrative. Mm -hmm. In fact, Judah, we have this weird story a few chapters earlier in Genesis 38 of, of, of Judah fathering his own grandson. The details get a little messy, but you know, his his own daughter-in-law, he hired her to be a prostitute unknowingly and he fathers his own grandsons. So that this broken stick named Judah uh, gets this blessing in Genesis 49, 10. And he is a broken stick. I mean, Tamar actually acted more righteously yeah, exactly. than he did. Exactly. So Judah confesses that he's broken. Mm-hmm. But he gets this promise in Genesis 49, 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, now if we just stop, if we read that in isolation, you think, okay, great. Judah's going to have a, a descendant who's going to rule as a king. But think about it in light of all the other promises that we've seen in Genesis and the unfolding narrative and the promise of the offspring. So we have an offspring promised to Eve who will crush the head of the serpent. You have an offspring promised to Abraham who will bless all the nations. And then you have an offspring promised to Judah who will rule over the nations. I think when you put those together, you see kind of a narrowing of that promise. The promised offspring is a descendant of Abraham who will bless the nations, but Abraham's great-great-grandson Judah is going to have a descendant who will rule over the nations as a king. So the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of the woman, is a kingly descendant, a ruler who will bless the nations as he rules over them. And this is the one through whom the curse will be undone. So we're uh, for. 40-some minutes into our conversation, and we're just getting to the end of Genesis. And I, and I picked up the pace for most of Genesis. But you can see how fundamental Genesis is to the story of the Bible. 
obviously I left out a, a whole ton of uh, pieces here. But as we see these first five, uh, six verses or so on this little tour through the Bible, see, Genesis lays the foundation for pretty much everything else that comes after. Mm-hmm. The story of Abraham and the family of Abraham becomes the story of the world. For it's through Abraham's descendant, Judah's royal descendant, uh, through this one, God will bless the world. And so we have that promise. That's how the early chapters of Genesis relate to the story of Israel. They're not unconnected. It's not as if, you know, we have these early chapters and then the flood and then Abraham and it's just kind of loosely connected. I think there's a real tight connection between them. It's all focused on God's promise to to uh, undo the curse through the offspring of the woman. And so that's what's going on all throughout Genesis. So we can go to Exodus uh, <laughs> and the rest of the Old Testament uh, a little more quickly. We, we were laughing earlier because my title is Professor of New Testament, and here we are spending our whole time in the Old Testament. But I, I hope that the listeners understand how fundamental the Old Testament is to understanding the New Testament. If all you ever read in your quiet time is the New Testament and you've never read the Old Testament, then you're not going to understand the New Testament. The Old Testament is the first three-fourths of our Bible. And so everything that Jesus is talking about uh, is built on God's promises in the Old Testament. Okay. I mean, it's the only Bible Jesus had himself. Exactly. Yeah. All right, Chris, I think it's probably a good time to take a break uh, just because it's that time. Sure. Dr. Chris Bruno is in studio. We're going through... Uh, his uh, book, which we're just, uh, just I think we're not going to get as far as we thought, but it's called The Whole Story of the Bible in 16 Verses. We've looked at uh, Genesis 1.31, Genesis um, 27 to 28, Genesis 3.6 to 7, Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12.2 and 3, Genesis 49.10. We're moving into Exodus and we come back. Dr. Chris Bruno is my guest, assistant professor of New Testament and Greek at Bethlehem College and SEM right here in Minneapolis. We're talking about his book, The Whole Story of the Bible in 16 Verses, which is, uh, we're not, made a nice dent. Kind of got <laughs> stuck in Genesis through most of the hour here, but we are getting now into Exodus, aren't we? Yeah, so we've got just a few minutes to, to walk through 65 books of the Bible. Okay, um, which you're an, you're an ambitious young man. Isn't quite going to happen. But, uh, you know, when we pick up the story in Exodus, um, the descendants of Abraham have gone to Egypt. We, we talked just briefly about the Joseph story. When they went down into Egypt, what happened? They, they multiplied greatly, um, and eventually they were enslaved. So we have the, the people of Israel enslaved, Uh, in Egypt, and God promises to bring them out, to bring them back to the land that he had promised to Abraham. And so that's exactly what we see in Exodus 12. He promised, through the the series of plagues that culminates with the death of the firstborn, the Lord delivers his people. And as he's delivering his people, he asks them to sacrifice this Passover lamb. So in Exodus 12, kill the Passover lamb. The Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and the doorpost, 
the Lord will pass over you, not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. What's really going on here is that God is asking for a substitute. See, the, the Israelites were just as guilty as the Egyptians. But what, what God's teaching them is that they need a substitute to die for their sin, really is what, is what hap, is happening here. And so th- this is fleshed out in the rest of the sacrificial system. You see this principle of substitution. But throughout Israel's history, these problems of sin and death keep cropping up. So God teaches them through the Passover lamb and through the sacrifices of the law that they need a substitute for their sin. But what happens? People keep sinning and they keep dying, sinning and dying, sinning and dying, on and on and on for centuries. So what that should have uh, told a faithful Israelite is, okay, this is not enough. We need something more than this because these sacrifices we're having to repeat week after week, month after month, year after year. We need something that will be a final sacrifice that will finally deal with sin and death. And again, as a Christian, we know this where this is heading through the sacrifice of Jesus, the one who truly substitutes for us. Um, so through the rest of, through much of Israel's history, you have this repeated pattern of sin and death and substitution, but sin keeps cropping up among the people. And then uh, when they get back into the land after the Exodus and there's a, a, a kingdom established, you have King Saul and the whole mess that happened with that. And then God, uh, and I'm, I'm jumping right to second Samuel seven, God established King David as the rightful king over the land. And, and he made a promise. He made a covenant with David in second Samuel seven. And he promised him, in 2 Samuel 7, 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, David, I will raise up your offspring after you. Oh, there's that word offspring again, mm-hmm. right? So he, just tracing that out again from Genesis 3 to Genesis 12 to Genesis 49 to 2 Samuel 7, we have this promised offspring. And he's, a, he's the son of a king. Um, he will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Think what's going on here is God is promising David that you will have a descendant who rules forever. But there's a problem. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to death over and over again. So we see it happen with Solomon, David's son again. What happens to Solomon? He sins and he dies. What happens to all the kings in Israel? They sin and they die over and over and over again, all the way until the exile. So God is holding out this promise that he will deal with sin and death. And so that's what we see in the prophets. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm way picking up the pace here. If we go all the way to Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, 6, uh, it speaks of the suffering servant. All we like, uh, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, so think about it in light of the whole story, what's going on here, or at least the, the little piece of the story that, that we've talked about. We have this promised offspring. We have this principle of substitution. And then here in Isaiah 53, we have them coming together in a way that was shocking, shocking to uh, Isaiah and shocking to the first century 
Jews when Jesus came on the scene. But we find out that the, the substitute is no longer a lamb or a goat or a bull. The substitute is a man, a servant, who takes the place of God's people, who substitutes for their sin. So that's the fulfillment of this principle of substitution. And, and, and that solves the sin problem, if we can put it that way. And then in Ezekiel 37, we have a hint at the solution to the death problem. God uh, takes the prophet Ezekiel into this valley filled with dry bones, this uh, evocative picture. And he looks around in this valley filled with dry bones in Ezekiel 37, and he asked Ezekiel, can these bones live? In Ezekiel 37, 3. And uh, God says to the prophet, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. So breath there is another, the, the same word for spirit. Mm-hmm. So I think what we're seeing here is a picture of the spirit bringing resurrection. So as God pours out his spirit, he brings life from the dead. And then the, this all culminates for example, in Isaiah 65, 17, when God promises a new creation, behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. So hanging over the Old Testament is this promise that through the offspring, the promised offspring of the woman, who's the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of Judah, the offspring of David, the problems of sin and death will be dealt with through the suffering servant and through the outpouring of the spirit, which brings new life, which ultimately then leads to the new creation. So, we did uh, Genesis in 45 minutes and Exodus through Malachi in about three minutes. Nice work, Chris. <laughs> so hanging over the Old Testament is this anticipation. It, it, it's not it's, fulfilled. Yeah, but the uninformed listener would be listening to the story going, all right, who is this offspring? I want to know who this offspring is. Who is it? Yes. Who is it? Well, in the Gospels, we have Jesus, the promised one, show up. And he says in, in, in Mark 1... 15, Jesus shows up preaching and he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news. When Jesus says the time is fulfilled, what he means is it's time. Everything that we've been waiting for for centuries is happening now. I am the promised one. And as we read the Gospels, as we read all four Gospels, we see them pointing to the fact that Jesus is the one who fulfills all of these promises so that when we get to the end of the Gospel of John in John 19.30, Jesus is on the cross. And what does he say? It is finished. So put, put the beginning of his ministry, Mark 1, together with John 19.30. The time is fulfilled. It is finished. What is finished? Well, Jesus has paid the price for sin. Jesus has done what was promised in and through the suffering servant. And so then we see, for example, in Romans 1, 3, and 4, Paul is referring to Jesus' resurrection. Jesus didn't remain in the grave. He rose from the dead. Um, He was declared, Romans 1, 3, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And and I skipped verse, the, the... previous phrase, he was descended from David according to the flesh. So here we have Paul saying the offspring of David is the one who paid the price for sin and rose again victorious from the grave so that all who hope in him 
all who are united by faith to him share in these great promises. And so we're kind of between the, the already, the, the fulfillment, and there's still more to come. Like we talked about, the world is still broken, but we look with hope to Revelation 21 when God will make all things new. There is a new creation coming. God is committed to restoring this creation. Heaven will come to earth, uh, and Jesus will transform this creation so that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and, and we will rise and live with him forever. And so, so that's where everything is headed uh, in this great story. I love it. You know, let me just let listeners know that Chris sort of had this inspiration when his son was uh, young. He wanted to get a really great uh, Bible story book for his son, and then he compared that to some of the texts he had as a, a, a seminary student and just wanted something in between, something that was an easier read for people that are just trying to get a nice, big, comprehensive uh, understanding of the whole story of the Bible. And he broke it down into 16 verses and put it in a book called The Whole Story of the Bible in 16 Verses. Uh, Dr. Chris Bruno, B-R-U-N-O, has been my guest. So, Chris, thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks so much. Went sure. fast, didn't it? it? It goes super fast. Yeah, it was great teaching, and I appreciate uh, the hard work you put into this and just give us getting, giving us all a chance to uh, understand the full comprehensive story in the Bible because I think we all need to refresh the story in its entirety. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a little break, and then we got Hour 2 coming up. Looking forward to talking to Tom Pritchard and then... Uh, Pastor Brent Kuhlman's. It's going to be a great hour. We'll be back in a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.